If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. And again, let me welcome you tonight, especially if you're visiting and if you're back from JBU, we're delighted that you're here. Each week at Redeemer, we study God's Word. We believe it is authoritative, and through it, He tells us of His grace in Jesus. And tonight, we're turning to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Uh, We're actually working our way through the letter, and we're in the midst of a warning. It's actually the second part of a warning begun last week. Last week, he warned us of spiritual immaturity. His concern was that some had remained in, others were reverting back to a place of spiritual immaturity instead of being led along towards spiritual maturity, and they were dull. And they were sluggish in their response to the gospel. And it was of great concern. Tonight we hear about a warning of apostasy or the danger of falling away. And you'll hear that language tonight. It is uh, considered uh, by many, including myself, one of the more frightening passages in certainly Hebrews and There are some others, but also in the whole Bible. John Calvin says of these words, they are like thunderbolts by which the readers might be struck dead. Unless God mitigates the severity of them by his reassurance in verse 9. That's why we'll be reading verses 4 to 9 tonight. We'll pick up 9 to 12 next week. These, these words invite us really to ask, I think, two major questions. One, you can't help but ask, can genuine Christians lose salvation? But secondly, how are we responding to the good news about Jesus? Let me invite you to consider those things from Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. This is the word of God. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being burned or cursed And its end is to be burned. This is the word of God. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. And surely the people are grass. You blow on us and we are gone. But... Your word is everlasting. We pray that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
If you, and not everybody does, if you've ever experienced what some call the dark night of the soul, uh, reading this passage may have been involved in what troubled you. A dark night of the soul, what is that? Well, it's a time, perhaps, at least, when you are overwhelmed by your sins and sinfulness, overwhelmed by your failures to love God and trust God, and feel like you are either a demon from hell, or that the devil is in the room with you, telling you that you are worthless, condemning you, and saying to you, God would be right to cast you off, and he probably has. And you're beginning to believe that. Uh, I suffered one of those my junior year of college. My roommate found me on the floor. I was uh, in despair. He asked me if I was okay, and I was so confused and felt so uh, shameful and helpless. I said, yeah, I'm okay. (laughs) But of course, I wasn't fine. I was miserable. And it was either this passage or the one in Hebrews 10, much like it, that had me down in light of my sins. I was convinced I had committed a sin so terrible or so frequently as a Christian that God was going to kick me out of his family if he hadn't already. Now, you understand that I had about two years or three years prior, I should say, become a Christian, become convinced that Christ died for my sins, that he loved me and gave himself for me. But now, three years later, I told myself I had committed those same sins as a Christian and was therefore guilty of crucifying the Son of God all over again, and therefore it was impossible For me to be saved. Maybe you've had that kind of internal dialogue. But what I didn't know at the time was that I was espousing something of the theology anyway of an ancient teacher from the third century named Novation. Who argued that those who had lapsed from the faith during a time of persecution could not be restored. Their sin was unforgivable no matter how sincere their repentance. And the church had no business welcoming the fallen back, the fallen in that way. Well, this is the kind of passage which sometimes confused Christians. They think it means that one day you can be a child of God and the next day you can be bound for hell. That one day Jesus loves me and died for me and the next day Jesus will never have anything ever to do with me ever again. But that is not what this passage is about. And I want to walk you through that. And I want to do it in three ways. One is to speak simply of the problem of people who fall away. He uses that language. They, verse 6, have fallen away. Then I want you to see the description of these who have fallen away. In verses 4 to 6, he piles up uh, describers. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's an illustration which uh, will point us to both the evidence and the end of people who fall away. So the problem, the description, the evidence, and end. 
in the first place, the problem of people who fall away. He speaks there of those who fall away. Does he mean Christians can lose their salvation? Or is he speaking of something else? Well, if you've been around Christianity long enough, you probably know people who have, have committed public and scandalous sins. Have they fallen away and can never be restored? Or maybe you know or at least know of people who haven't committed uh, some kind of public and scandalous sin for which anybody condemns them, but they have walked away or slipped away from Christ and the church. Is there any hope for them? The preacher who helped me most understand Hebrews, and I think, I think he got it right some 20 years ago when I studied uh, by listening to him, He was a former missionary in Africa. He had become by then a well-known pastor in England, and he had suddenly left the ministry to take up with his mail-traveling companion. Getting into the ministry, he said at the time, was the worst mistake he'd ever made. And, And it's a terrible irony that the man who has most recently helped me study the book of Hebrews, I have quoted him to you. And a fellow minister in the PCA, I just learned, was in a secret four-year affair with a woman in his congregation. Terrible sins are committed by pastors and by Christian people of all stripes. King David covered up his adultery by lies and murder, in effect. Peter denied Christ to his face. Yet David repented and Peter repented. Both were restored. The verdict is still out, however, on others who yet live. Is that what Hebrews is speaking of? Or something even worse? Something other than public and scandalous sins for which you could be publicly ruined or thrown in jail? Well, what I want to say to you is that it's not about losing Salvation, if you are a Christian, that is one interpretation of it, but there are others, and that is not what it means. There are just a few major interpretations, and let me walk you and point you to three. And and, and I aim to be fair to all the various positions. One position is a position, uh, what you might call the Wesley Arminian position, named because of the the very famous John Wesley. And it's it's a position found among Wesleyan Methodists, not the Calvinist Methodists, and, and among various holiness denominations. It says that you can be a true Christian and then lose your salvation. And it thinks that this is proof of that. This passage is Wesley certainly taught that from this passage. In this view, you could be a believer, then fall away or fall out of salvation, but you can be restored. At least most who hold this view believe that you can come back, and you'll find often altar calls inviting people to come back, even multiple times after multiple falls into various kinds of sin. And it's the kind of view that leaves Christians, I would argue, in the position like the person pulling flower petals off a daisy, saying of Jesus, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Which is it today? And I don't know. And interestingly, if that is the teaching of this passage, this passage then is actually saying 
more than what most folks that hold that position actually want to say because it says it is impossible for you to be restored if that's the case. Now, some realizing that softened the word impossible to make it say difficult. It's difficult, they say, not impossible. The problem with that view is it literally just guts the meaning of the word impossible, which is used three other places in Hebrews, pointedly, very shortly, when it says it is impossible for God to lie. And that does not mean it's difficult for him to do so. He cannot, and he does not, and he will not. And so um, that's one view. Another view, besides the what you might call the Wesley-Arminian view, is the uh, once saved, always saved view. And it asserts, and I simply say rather too flippantly, that if you are a person who once professed faith in Jesus, then you are saved because of that profession no matter who you are or what you do. You can believe in Jesus one day and you can live like the devil the rest of your life. But lo and behold, because you believed one day, you are forever saved. The point then of Uh, This passage would be that a genuine Christian doesn't lose salvation here, but they lose some of the blessings of God that they might otherwise have. Now, I want to say that's a strange view, and it isn't the Bible's view either, because it isn't true that you can be saved and live like the devil the rest of your life. It just isn't true that you can have the hope of pardon without any transformation at all. Salvation brings freedom from condemnation for sin. It also brings the presence of the Holy Spirit who changes us and sanctifies us to varying degrees over periods of time, certainly. But there is always some change in someone who is new. The better view... In my view, certainly, is that this passage is not about a genuine Christian losing their salvation, but it's rather about a false Christian, one who professes faith in Christ, falling away from their profession of faith in Christ. And that's the Reformed view, sometimes called the Calvinistic view. Why say this is about people professing faith and falling away from their profession? Because... On the one hand, of the very clear promises you find in many other portions of the Bible that we are safe in Jesus, but then also because of the descriptions he gives of these people and the illustration he uses, and I'll point you to all of those things. But first, think of the promises we find elsewhere, which are certainly much clearer than much of the obscurity in this passage. John 10, verse 27 to 28, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. If the life he gives is eternal, if it's everlasting, then it isn't temporary. And if he's God, and he is, and he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand, then no one can snatch you out. He holds on to us. 
This is why I think Paul triumphantly puts it at the end of Romans chapter 8. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the things present nor things future, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which is why elsewhere he'll say in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus. So then what do you do with Hebrews 6? Well, I would argue that what you have here is uh, the situation where people have professed faith in Jesus. They've been around the gospel. They've heard it. They've benefited by it in certain ways. They've even perhaps been accepted as members in the community, the church. They're participating in its life. And then they turn away from him. They fall away from him. They definitively reject him. You can read a description of those people elsewhere in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. The Apostle John, 1 John 2, 19, says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be complained that they all are not of us. There were people, he's saying, who at one time had been part of the church, even publicly publicly professed faith in Jesus and to be united to his people. But he says they left us. And he doesn't mean, you know, they got a job transfer. And he doesn't mean they decided to worship with those people on the other side of town. They left Christianity and Christ. They didn't continue. Why? For they were not of us. How do you know that? Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Had they been genuine believers of us, they would not have left. In other words, persevering in the faith is a sign of genuine faith. And falling away is a sign that you were never truly saved if you truly indeed have fallen away. Now, before you think I'm imposing some grand theological schemes on the passage, I want you to see it from the passage itself. And I think you see that in the descriptions of those who fall away. Verses 4 to 6, he piles up phrases. Notice he says, they had once been enlightened. Second, that they had tasted the heavenly gift. Third, they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, they tasted the good word of God. Fifth, they tasted of the power of the age to come. Now, He's piled those up. He's going to add one more. We're going to get to all those in just a minute. But notice how he didn't describe them. He didn't use any of the language he has previously used to describe genuine Christians. If you look at chapter 2, just as an example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, he calls Christians sons of God. Chapter 2, verse 11, those who are sanctified. Chapter 2, verse 12, brothers and sisters. 2 verse 13, the children of God. 2 verse 14, he describes them as children. 2 verse 17, as brothers, brothers and sisters. Chapter 3 verse 1, holy brothers and sisters. But here we are in chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 and he uses none of that language. Not until later when he comes back to their assurance to speak to those true believers about their assurance. But here he uses arguably very obscure expressions, open to a whole variety of meanings, which are in fact debated even within every camp 
of the various theologies that try to explain this text. You'll find people are all over the map on what these things mean. Because it's not immediately obvious that these things necessarily mean these people are Christians. And I'm simply saying don't force the writer to say what he isn't saying. He doesn't say it is possible for brothers and sisters in Christ who are the true children of God, who have been sanctified in Jesus, if they fall away, to be restored. He doesn't say that. What is he saying? It's possible to know and experience a whole lot without knowing and experiencing true salvation. And in that light, think of what he says. They were in the first place enlightened. Many ancient interpretations, in fact, it's the predominant view in the ancient Christian church, the early Christian church, understood enlightened there to be baptism. Because many in the early church, after the writing of the New Testament, when they wrote doctrinal formulations about baptism, actually used the word enlightenment for the sacrament of baptism. You won't find that elsewhere in the Bible, but the early church used it. So some looking back say that's what he must mean. But I think this is better understood by Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, where, where in the other scary passage, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. They had received the knowledge of the truth. They had been taught about Jesus and his sacrifice for sins. They'd been told that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, that he was the Messiah who had come, who had died on a cross, but they deliberately reject him, the only sacrifice for sins. And if you don't have his sacrifice for sins, there is no other offering for your sins. And so there's nothing left but judgment. Either Jesus is crucified for you, or you will face condemnation for your own sins. So here, I think, in chapter 6, they'd heard the gospel. They, they, they knew the way of salvation. They probably professed it at one time. Second, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Frankly, nobody really knows what this means. I mean, speculation is, and ancient interpreters say, because of the word tasted, that it must apply to eating, and therefore this is probably about the Lord's Supper, especially if you take enlightenment and light of baptism. But he uses tasted for the word of God later. They tasted the goodness of the word of God. He doesn't mean they ate it. He uses it metaphorically. So it could be that he's just saying they experienced something of the heavenly gift, whatever that is exactly. Maybe it's benefits of the gospel more generally. And they had been partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is strong language. But it may be referring to the ordinary or even extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit without the regenerating or the giving of the new heart that the Holy Spirit does by grace. After all, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, if I have not love, I am nothing. And he means there, if you don't love, if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit in that way, you aren't a Christian if you speak in tongues. And then he goes on to say they tasted the good word of God. They had some experience of the goodness of the gospel. They tasted the powers of the age to come. Maybe he's referring to the signs and wonders that many of them experienced that he talks about in chapter 2. The miracles, the healings. They had seen that. Perhaps they'd been healed in some way themselves. In other words, it's, it's, in this interpretation, it is possible to hear the gospel. Perhaps even eat the Lord's Supper. To share in some of the blessings of the church and its community. Even some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Even see 
or benefit by some of the miraculous powers and yet turn away. And furthermore, look at verse 6. He speaks of them. They crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm and hold him up to contempt. In other words, whatever qualities these people possess, they are standing with Pilate and with Herod and the Pharisees and other religious leaders and even the crowds that said to Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. They are saying... I don't need Jesus crucified for me. In fact, I have put Jesus on trial. I have weighed him in the balance. And I think he ought to be on that cross. He ought to be crucified. He was an evildoer. He was a blasphemer. He he was an insurrectionist. He was some kind of traitor. He deserves to be hung there. And I take my stand on that side is what they're saying. This is a very hard-hearted hard-hearted view of Jesus. Two examples of that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You remember Saul in the Old Testament, King Saul? Arguably, and, and certainly by the Bible's account, at one time accounted to be among the prophets. Is Saul not a prophet? And he prophesied, and yet it is said of him that the Spirit was taken from him. He died a rebel. And certainly, arguably, died outside of faith and outside of salvation. Uh, John Owen says, It is a fearful thing to realize that a man may experience the extraordinary operations of the Holy Spirit and yet not experience the saving operations of the Holy Spirit. And maybe a a clearer example for you is simply that in the New Testament of Judas. Anglican scholar Philip Hughes says this about Judas. No defection is more startling than that of Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve, no less, who for the duration of our Lord's ministry was blessed with the special privilege of being constantly in his presence, enjoying the warmth of his friendship, receiving his sublime instruction, and witnessing his wonderful works, and yet who sold his heart to Satan and betrayed his master he had followed so long and so closely. Furthermore, the apostate condition of his heart, though known to Jesus, was not even suspected by the rest of the twelve, to whom it was unthinkable that any of their number could prove to be a traitor. Jesus warns us, warns us all of this in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, you know, on, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. He doesn't dispute that they had served and done some incredible things. But they didn't love God. They didn't want to follow Jesus. And that was manifested in the fruit of their life. They had gifts but not fruit. And so what, what, what Hebrews then is referring to 
is, and, and think of the original hearers, Jewish Christians who were considering going back to their profession of faith in Judaism because of social pressure and family pressure. Do we really need Jesus to be the Messiah? Can't we just keep believing everything we used to? And he's saying, look, you cannot turn your back on the Messiah. He is your only hope of salvation. This is why Calvin says the apostle here is not talking about theft or perjury or murder or drunkenness or adultery. He's referring to a complete falling away from the gospel in which the sinner has offended God, not in some one respect, but only, but has utterly renounced his grace. So these are the descriptions. And I think furthermore, arguably in favor of this view, um, is the illustration that he gives in verses 7 and 8, the evidence and end of those who fall away. Very briefly, he illustrates his point. Verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that falls on it produces a crop useful. For those sake, for, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What is he saying? He's confirming that they were never true Christians, never true believers, but for a while they were among true believers. How does that show up? Two gardens. Both receive rain, falling liberally upon it, sitting under the gospel ministry. But the gardens produce two very different things. One garden, under the benefits of that rain, produces fruit to be enjoyed. It's productive for the purpose for which it was planted. And it is blessed by God, he says, Its spiritual productiveness is by divine grace and receives the divine blessing. The other soil receives the benefits of that same rain, but produces thorns and thistles. It's of no use to anyone. And this person, he says, invites God's curse and the end is to be burned. So the picture here is not of a field that was fruitful and then lost it. It's a picture of two different kinds of fields. And so I conclude with three exhortations to us. One, teachers, be careful. Christians, especially who have tender consciences, who have a depressive spirit or temperament, Look at passages like this and they look at their failures and they are wrongly persuaded that they are either the Antichrist, demonic possessed, or they have committed the unpardonable sin and they are out and there's no hope. And yet all the while, they are growing deeper in their persuasion that they are a sinner whose only hope is Jesus. Don't take that hope from them. Strengthen them in that hope. He saves the worst. Second, churchgoers, be warned. If you can be described as immature from the passage from last week, are you headed in the right direction toward maturity? Or are you dull and sluggish of hearing, careless, And complacent, and is that really evidence in your life of a prelude to falling away? And don't mistake gifts, or because people think you hung the moon, for grace and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
not all of us are going to have equal fruit. Jesus speaks of those who bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, but all Christians bear some. And you judge good soil not by the rain falling on it, but by the crop produced later in the summer. Those who fall away reject God's gifts. They despise God's son. They forfeit God's blessing. So you, are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus? Are you growing instead more and more hard-hearted toward him? And then thirdly, Christians, be comforted. Your sins may be heinous in our eyes. I hope they're heinous to you in your eyes, however little they may be. But Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Peter denied Christ to his face, but Jesus restored him. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? One, as another put it, failed in his fidelity to Christ as Christians will and often do. While the other decisively repudiated him. One did not live up to the cross. And I might add the calling he had received. While the other despised it. So if you are a Christian, just keep looking to Christ. Crucified for your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, this is your word, and perhaps they're hard words to hear. Uh, Grant that we would be changed by these words. Grant to us your spirit's work of producing good fruit for your glory and our good. And help us to rest and trust in Jesus for all of it. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.